Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, Harmon, we are live. You watching the Leafs game? Yep. Are you outraged about the chin strap? I'm Freud, so I'm hoping for a Leafs loss here. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Very fair. All right. We have people. Am I live? Uh, I see a few people filtering in. All right. Perfect. Excellent. Well, that means it's working. Harmon's watching the Leafs game and rooting against the Leafs. I am watching the Leafs game. With my usual studied detachment. <laughs> um, um, no, I'm obviously... What's the celebration plan if they win an OT? <laughs> I'm going to put on my John Tavares jammies and um, go for a run without my chin strap. Um, look, this has been a really good game. This has been a really good series. It wasn't, and then it became a really great series the last couple of games. One thing that I think applies for the Vancouver Canucks as you think about these two teams, right? They have one thing in common, despite, you know, the massive difference in success that they've had in the playoffs. And that for me, like the defining similarity that these two teams share is an intense sense of stubbornness, right? For Mm -hmm. years, the Tampa Bay lightning were too small. Um, You know, they had the wrong approach. They couldn't get it done in the playoffs. And, and, People forget because now we are watching the lightning and thinking, wow, look at that clutch team versus this bunch of like, you know, offensive soft chokers. Right. But for years, that was the Tampa Bay lightning. Like they lost, they choked up three, one series leads in the Eastern conference final. I think it's three or four times each time to the eventual cup winner happened to pit happened against Pittsburgh, happened against Boston, happened against, of course, the, um, of course the, uh, Washington capitals. And, you know, they got swept in the first round. They missed the playoffs a couple of years in there, right? Like, through it all, they kind of didn't change their approach. Now, I know they went out and got Goudreau and Coleman, but Goudreau and Coleman aren't, like, those are (laughs) certainly, in Coleman's case, a top-of-the-lineup type player. Uh, That was more about cap fit and depth. Those guys aren't heavies by any means. They they play competitive, hardworking hockey, don't get me wrong. But the idea that the Tampa Bay Lightning changed their DNA in, in getting those guys, which is a popular narrative spun by, um, you know, some people who, who ride for tough, heavy playoff hockey, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold water. The Tampa Bay Lightning won because they were the most complete team and they did the best at fitting the maximum amount of talent possible under the upper limit of the salary cap or in the case of their Stanley Cup win in 2021, perhaps creatively over the salary, uh, upper limit of the salary cap. The Toronto Maple Leafs for the last few years have been sort of 
talked about as if they should dismantle the way that they're built, right? You can't pay that those four forwards that amount. You know, Nylander should be traded for Pesci or whatever, whatever the talking point is. Honestly, there's like a series of defensemen who've been the guy that they should trade Nylander for. Mackenzie Weger, uh, I mean, go on on the list. Lots of good players, by the way. But that's sort of been the talking point. And through it all, the Leafs have kind of just stuck to who they are. You think about the team they were when they had Kapanen and Andreas Janssen, for example. And they were this absolute track meet team. And they kind of had to dismantle that a little bit and, and figure things out again under the cap. But they've kind of built the mirror image team. Like you look at Makayev, you look at all the speed that they've got. You look at how they've played Tampa when they've been able to turn up, when they've played with the type of intensity that they need. Um, it's the way they close space. It's the way they move the puck. And, and they've been so stubborn about pursuing that template and drafting players who fit that template. Guys like Matt Nyes and guys like Nick Robertson. And that stubbornness hasn't been rewarded in the playoffs. The playoffs at the end of the day are such small sample sort of lottery hockey, right? Like it's coin flip hockey sometimes and matchups matter and injuries matter and luck matters and not getting goaltended matters and just not getting the yips matters. That's obviously been a Leafs issue, particularly the last two postseasons when they've lost to the likes of Montreal and, and Columbus, you know, like, like in some years it was like, well, it's Boston. You know what I mean? But the last two years, you, can, you couldn't even say that. So it's going to be interesting to see if they get rewarded for it. And regardless of whether or not they do, I still think there's a useful template there to keep in mind, particularly now that Vancouver has new hockey operations management, right? Like, what's your approach? And can you stick with it? Can you be stubborn in that approach even when nothing goes your way for years and years and years, which happens which happens in this cruel league and in this cruel sport, particularly with the way the playoffs are set up. Yeah. And I think the reason a lot of teams are stubborn, and I don't even think this is necessarily uh, reflective of just the Leafs is because of how the playoff format is set up. You need an extended window and it's easy to look at teams like Tampa uh, as, as sort of past failures that eventually through persistence were able to break through. I mean, how many years did, Washington struggled to get out of the second round and then eventually just when it seemed like everybody started to kind of count them out as an elite team certainly it wasn't um in the year they won the cup their best team on paper they were able to obviously get it done um you look at how many years St. Louis was around the margins as a top eight top 10 team year in year out and then they finally got it done it just takes a really extended window um and that's why I think a lot of times if you're let's say Toronto right now whether you're right or not, you can you can become sort of stubborn and we'll ultimately see if their approach um, makes sense because it, it still is polarizing around the league. And, I, and I'm sure, Drancer, you know this For as well, sure. where you have a lot of executives. Like when I did this anonymous, uh, anonymous um, uh, cup contenders uh, tears piece, um, you know, I, I got a chance to poll execs and there are a lot of them that look at the Leafs as a critically flawed team and still think that they're not big enough to get it done on the playoffs. They still hate the goaltending situation. And so um, even around the industry, it's, it's, it's one of those really interesting situations where we'll have to kind of just wait and see which way it turns, because one way or another, it's going to have significant implications, especially because the moment they signed that Tavares contract, they committed to shortening their window and, um, I think Tavares has obviously come alive recently in the series, but with his five and five impact sort of diminishing rapidly. Yeah, exactly. Like that's a, that's going to be a problem contract at $11 million. So their window to get it done. isn't very long either. Yeah. Unless they can solve the problem, which is the other lesson of the Tampa Bay lightning, right? The, The lightning solved problems like nobody's business and they have for years and years and years. And that's the other thing is that it's so much harder to stay at the top once you get there because of what being really good does to your cap. Right. And, you know, this sort of brings us to the Canucks back to the Canucks anyway, because all of a sudden for the first time in a long time, it feels like the way this organization is talking is so much more process driven than what we're used to. Right. It's it, in the past, we'd expect them to take like the rosiest possible view on their short-term results, almost like they were convincing fans or, or making an argument as opposed to having a real conversation 
about where they're at. And we know where that's gotten them. Uh, categorical failure in just about every department for the last seven years. And all of a sudden, the team gets hot, right? Runs hot for 60 games to end the year. And management's like, yeah, but we still have problems. We have to think, think about the long view. We have to get younger. It, it feels like there's a new plan here. And yet, I don't feel like we have a sense of it yet, right? Like, we don't know... I don't think Harmon and we don't, I don't think we've seen enough moves yet to have a sense of exactly what that entails, right? They haven't named it. It's not like we know that it's a rebuild or, you know, uh, or, or a tweaks. I mean, we don't know yet exactly what's going on. It hasn't been labeled. What do you think it will look like? Do you think we have any sense of it? Do you have any sense of it yet? Yeah, I think we vaguely sort of have an, have an understanding and an idea that, okay, well, they'll probably, ship out money and they'll probably ship out um, some of their more expensive top six players. But the question and what we ultimately don't know is how aggressive are they going to be on that, uh, on that front? And it starts with, I think the JT Miller conversation, because I just think that is one way or another in terms of setting a a direction for your franchise. You're talking about, I think two polar opposite sort of directions that you're going to kind of need to um, commit to, or, or maybe not, direction that your direction necessarily changes a ton but your subsequent moves and the the landscape of the blueprints actually get to your desired goal kind of looks a lot uh, a lot different right because if you resign miller well all of a sudden there's a ton of incentive where you've got less time to turn things around and now you've not only got to got to worry about um trying to win as fast as possible in in the Pedersen in Pedersen and Hughes's best years but you've also got to be mindful of um, Horvat and Miller and, and how you want to win and, and maximize Miller's best years, right? Because anytime you sign a long-term contract for a player who's 29-30, you're going to accrue the maximum value in the first few years. And so you contrast that, obviously, to the alternate scenario scenario where, let's say, they move on from him and peddle him for future assets. Well, in that situation, you maybe have more patience and you and you look to build a little bit differently. So for me, I think it's kind of hard to know how exactly the blueprint looks until we know exactly what they're going to do with Miller. And obviously with Rutherford kind of coming out and on 650 sort of saying that the numbers got to make sense for us. And if it doesn't, we're going to be prepared to make the unemotional decision and trade him. Um, I at least like the fact that they're open to both options. Uh, I think both of us personally have our sort of take on what they should do. Um, but it, le- it at least shows that they're not set in their way um, one way or another. It's, it's one of those situations. And I think this goes as well for a player like Brock Besser, where I think in the past, the management often had this view of it, it, the the decision-making process would almost be binary, where they'd look at a player and be like, do we like this player and do we want to keep him or do we want to move on from him? It'd be like that simplistic. Whereas I think now what I'm kind of noticing with this management group, or at least the sense that I kind of get, is when it comes to decisions with these players, it's not just about is do we like this player, it's about does he fit with our cap, does he fit with our window? And we saw it, I think, with the Tyler Mott decision at the deadline, where I think the Canucks liked Tyler Mott, but it had to be at the right number, right? And I think and well, also, and that number was aggressively low. Yes, like yeah, they were 100%. they were far apart at the end of the day. Yeah, and so now I think with Miller and Besser, I'm sure they like both players, but they're going to have numbers in mind for what what would what would constitute a fit, and we'll see how how low those numbers are. And and ultimately how that affects the decision making process, but I, I do think it's layered, and I think overall in terms of big picture planning, I think it's just tough to deduce what direction they're going to go in. Aside from just vaguely, they're going to try and get younger and shed salary until we know. I think for starters, what they're going to do with Miller. Yeah, I I don't disagree with you. I think so. I'm um. There's a lot of leaping off points. I think the idea of a binary versus the Brock Besser situation is fascinating. So I'm working on a piece tonight um, with Uncle Rick Dollywall. And Dollywall and I are, are going to report in that piece tomorrow, a preview for you. Keep this off Twitter. Not really. I don't care. I wouldn't be saying it in public if I didn't want it on Twitter. But we're going to be reporting that, you know, 
next week, effectively, negotiations are, are really going to kick into high gear between the Canucks and Besser's camp. And that, you know, we get the sense that there's at least some common ground on a, on a preference to find a solution that's not you know, one of the devices that either side can use, right? That's not the qualifying offer device, which would entitle to Besser to 7.5 million as a result of the structure of his deal. And that similarly is not, you know, the arbitration device, which would obviously soar the relationship. I think there's a strong preference in the next seven weeks to try and find something that's done. Now, I think longer term options have been discussed. I think really short term options have been discussed, but I suspect that two or three years is going to be the, um, is going to be sort of the sweet spot, right? With, with, as you'd expect, the player preferring two years, because that gets them right to unrestricted free agency and the team narrowly preferring to buy an unrestricted free agency. And no surprise there. Now, partly to get back to the binary discussion, right? If they approach it that way, one of the benefits is a, you, you duck having a $7.5 million cap hold on your books next year for a player who's very good, but 7.5 million. I mean, that's rarefied air. That's, 36 forwards in the league make that amount. And the only guys who would have scored less than Besser this season, you know, uniformly missed like 30 games with injury, right? I mean, you're, you're Evgeny Malkin types. So that's not good. I suspect though, that the club would qualify him if it came to it. I just, I think there's going to be common ground and I think we're going to see those negotiations begin relatively quickly. And, and that does suggest sort of a level of strategic thinking in terms of the, you know, idea of, well, this is the best solution for now. And, you know, we'll enhance his trade value. We'll enhance our positioning. We'll lock up a good player for a bit. He's at the right age for us. Like there's, there's a level of deliberation uh, and and a deliberate sort of approach that I think is evident and, and sort of stands in contrast with the yes or no foundation versus transition piece approach that we're kind of perhaps too used to in this market. hundred percent. And I think the two or three year option, as I've kind of been, as I was kind of thinking about this, I, I, I thought to myself, that seems like the best case, like what I, what, what I'd think the Canucks should do if they were in that position, because if you're going to sort of, even if you're of the mindset that you think Brock Besser should be traded for whatever reason, right? Because there is that camp out there. You don't want to do it now, and we know with 46, 46 points in 71 games, this trade values at a low ebb and, and how the qualifying offer complicates things, as opposed to you leave your options flexible if you sign him to this sort of shorter, uh, a shorter deal where you have both options open. If he continues to play well, well, you've got this young player who fits well into your top six uh, locked in at uh, a cap hit that is going to be more palatable. Um, and yet if he has a great season, you also have the ability to, let's say next year, sell high on him if you want, right? Because for as much as people might be down on Besser now, it was only a year ago where he was, where he had 23 goals and 49 points in 56 games. He was Vancouver's best forward in 2021. And he spent the entire second half of the season without Elias Patterson, right? And that's, I think, Brock Besser at his peak. I think this was Brock Besser at a low point in terms of his, um, what sort of performance he's capable of. And it's just strategically to me, it makes the most sense in terms of maximizing his value as an asset, whether it means ultimately keeping him or ultimately trading him just leaves both options open. You're kind of able to just kick the can down the road. And I think that's um, important in the situation because right now, this, this decision in terms of the binary approach of, do we lock him long-term now or do we trade him now? it's a really tough spot to be in. And so I, I think to me, that seems um, on surface, uh, on surface level as a, as a decent compromise. With regards to the wider approach, right? I sort of think we have a mini template of what this looks like. A, just a mini template. Cause we haven't seen many moves, right? Arshdeep Baines has signed. We've got the Mott trade. We've got the Richardson claim. We've got the Dermot trade. We've got the Hamannick trade. That's about it. That's really what we've seen from Canucks management, right? To this point in terms of player personnel decisions. And I think there's a common thread there. 
uh, albeit perhaps not with the Arsteep Baines. I mean, they signed a CHL overager. Okay, fine. With Dermot Hamannick, though, and with Mott Richardson, I do think you're seeing a situational awareness of the need to get both younger and cheaper and better, frankly, at least chase upside all at once, right? So Hamannick's $3 million, You send him out, you get a pick, right? You then flip that pick, basically. I mean, not, not, not literally, but basically for a cheaper, younger guy in Dermot, right? And then with Mott, you've got a pressure point, so you have to act there. They didn't do something more dramatic, which personally I thought they probably should have leaned toward. Like, I, I think they should have leaned toward clearing more cap space in an ideal world. I don't think the market was quite there. I think when you look at the prices for forwards, when you look at Andrew Kopp and what he went for, for example, I, I just don't think the market was there. Uh, Toffoli was really the only, like, Toffoli and I guess Brandon Hagel were really the only forwards who went for big money and neither was a rental, right? Both were more valuable in part because of the term left on their deal. So, you know, I think the, and then, and then, so they make the deal they have to make with Mott and then they replace him affordably and actually pretty effectively with Richardson on the, on the wire. And that to me, like those series of moves, there is a through line there, which is, you know, left hand, right hand, right? On the one hand, you make the, you make the Hamannick cap clearing deal with the right hand, you get a younger, cheaper guy. Uh, on the left hand, you, you lose Tyler Mott because your time's up. It's your last chance to monetize the asset. Um, with the right hand, you replace him on the waiver wire and at least get a useful penalty killer. And I think Brad Richardson proved to be a little bit more than that, all told, right? So that to me at least hints at a more long, a more far-sighted approach, right? Younger players, uh, bring in as much value as you can in every move you make, replace guys, find ways to replace guys in an asset neutral or free way where, wherever possible. Um, that to me suggests that we're in for a couple of years where the club's not likely going to be pushing chips into the middle. And in fact, is probably far more likely to make the sorts of deals where they're not weakening the team on paper because again, they're replacing guys, right? And they're, and they're replacing guys effectively, but just like upping the war chest, reloading the war chest of assets that they have to play with, with some discipline while also trying to be competitive. And you know, we saw the Canucks kind of try that in the early years of the Benning era, and it sucked. Like, it didn't work. But it's not necessarily an approach that I hate or loathe or disagree with philosophically. It's just that you have to be really good about doing the Bill Zito thing, right? And finding those, or, or the Kyle Dubas thing, and finding your David Camps and your Andres Cashes and your, you know, Colin Blackwells and, and what have you. You need to be really, really smart about those bets that you that you make. Yeah, and I think there are two things there that stand out. One is I think the replaceability factor. I think this management, at least my impression of it, looks at players and feels that it, it has more confidence that it can replace certain player types. And obviously, this is at a much uh, at a much lower level. But would it have surprised? you if under the last management regime for example if they looked at a player like Tyler Mott and went he's really fast he kills penalties he's good defensively he's driving our third line yeah yeah we need him right and and I think in in this situation management was able to look at look at that and be and sort of view Mott and and say he's, he's a good bottom six player but he's not replaceable and certainly not at the dollar and certainly at the dollar that he'd command, he's not, uh, that's not an efficient investment. And so they're able to move on quickly. And so I think that sticks out. And I wonder how that's going to um, guide some of these bigger decisions where I, again, the sense that I get is they're not necessarily married to the idea of we have to have JT Miller or we have to have Brock Besser, right? Again, kind of goes into the binary thing where it has to make sense. Um, which I like because it's a more disciplined approach about how you're um, essentially allocating your your cap space. And then number two, I think with with the whole notion of reloading, the problem with, I guess, the initial part of when Benning first took over the team wasn't necessarily the initial deals that he struck, right? Um, Because he got uh, a second-round pick for Kevin Bieksa. 
um, the Kessler Hall wasn't actually that bad. Um, when you look at a first-round pick, you get uh, a third-line center, Nick Benino, who you could have, again, monetized for future assets. The problem was when Benning got those initial assets was how they were then – was how those picks were then monetized, right? Because the Canucks got McCann uh, out of, say, the, the Kessler deal. Well, they take McCann in the second-round pick and then turn around and flip that for a good Branson. Instead right. of peddling Benino for more more assets or a younger player that maybe fits in better – they trade him for Sutter and give Sutter that massive extension, right? It was step one of the actual unloading process, which again kind of goes back to your point of you've got to be you've got to do the Bill Zito thing well in terms of identifying the right uh, right uh, young talent to invest in. Um, but the problem there was they got the initial assets and then they kind of blundered it by right. by and and a lot of those in terms of the Goodbranson and Sutter ones especially I think. It just didn't make sense with the team's timeline. Whereas I think now it's at least a bit of an easier process because you're you're at least very clear about your your goal in terms of it's going to take probably a little bit of time uh, to get back rolling. Although I do wonder, and and I know you've touched on this in the past, how difficult do you think it is to let's say in let's say in some of these trades whether it's a Besser or a Miller or a Garland or any of the other pieces the Canucks might want to potentially sell or, or consider listening to offers on in the offseason, how difficult or how much harder do you think it is to hit on, let's say, younger prospects as opposed to just targeting, let's say, draft picks and then using that as currency? Like, how hard do you think it is to do the Bill Zito thing, essentially? Well, I think it's really hard this year, right? I mean... We talk about the Bill Zito thing like it's easy, but one thing that also allowed Bill Zito to do the Bill Zito thing was that, you know, he was like one of three GMs with buying power, right? Because his owner turned the taps on or kept the taps on anyway uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, that's not going to be the case this year. Like the free agent class is underwhelming. I mean, you know me, I've already built my lists. I've shared my list with you. How many guys do you like on my lists, Armin? Not a lot. Like, there's no Radko Gudis. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I don't think it's a straightforward process to do, and yet you have to do it. You just, you have to find a way because there's no, like, you have to have cheap labor. You have to have um, good players on efficient contracts, particularly if you're going to try and do the difficult dance, the difficult tap dance of getting younger, cheaper, better all at once. Uh, which which I do think and I do expect is, is going to be at least part of the, the approach. Now, good comment from Levy F in the chat. The Benning 2014 template, trade Garrison for a pick, then flip it for KHL All-Star Lyndon Bay. But that's a very Rutherfordian type move in, in some ways, right? I mean, you replace Garrison with a 23-year-old who had sterling AHL results. Like, I liked the Lyndon Bay trade at the time. Now, it didn't work out. But that gamble on its own, to me, is not fatal. What makes it fatal is when you do it again with Granlund. And again, you know, um, what what was the other one with, uh, well, there was the Granlund one. That was for Shinkarik. What was the one where the Canucks sent the second to Calgary? A Berchi. Berchi, right. And that turns into Rasmus, Rasmus Anderson, Emerson Edom, Clendenning. Like, it was the critical oh, yeah. mass. Yeah, it was the critical mass of those types of moves resulting in a net zero for the team, right? That's what kills you. Um, very important that if you're making some of these bets, if you're getting the Dermots of the world. Now, I think the club very much views Dermot as a third pair defenseman still, but I do think they like his defensive abilities. And I do think there's hope that he can be more from more than that for them down the line. Now, um, if he's not, if he's just a third pair guy, you know, then monetizing him, right? Keeping his contract value at the right level, man- managing, you know, his, un- his restricted free agency after the season, uh, doing all of that stuff will in some ways determine, you know, how well this approach does. You can't, you can't miss 10 times. You can miss a couple, you know, it's, it's like a, it's, it's volume like anything else in hockey. Yeah. And I guess the question I would have is because, I, I guess there are some similarities in if they continue down this sort of Dermot 
acquisition type role where you're going for younger players and in some of these trades as opposed to say the straight up draft picks, right? Because there were there was definitely as much as I think most people liked the Dermot move in a vacuum, I think there were definitely other 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 people out there as well who looked at it as well, we'd rather have the third round pick, right? Or and to go back to Garrison Garrison example, instead of rolling the dice on these um on these projects, rather just keep and just hoard all these draft picks. And then maybe you start to I don't know, you can also decide what you want to do with those draft picks, but how how aggressive would you be in that sense? Um where like what's your preference on draft picks versus those like age twenty one to twenty three type um age twenty to maybe twenty three type prospects um and how you value um the differential there. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's first talk about the Leafs who have lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning in Game 6 in overtime. Braden Point coming up big with the overtime goal to force Game 7. Um, Austin Matthews had just missed a tap-in, and he, he blew a wheel in the neutral zone, like just caught an edge. And as a result, uh, I think it's Brandon Hagel able to just zoom in with a ton of speed into the, into the Leafs' end. Two scoring chances. Campbell makes... A great save off of Kalorn. Braden Point on the doorstep deposits it under his left, under his right pad, excuse me. And we will have a game seven in Toronto. And you don't like the Leafs' chances in a game seven, right? I mean, at the end of the day, no matter what, and I think the Leafs are a materially better team here. Um, I think we've seen it every time they turn up. The Lightning believe they're going to win every game seven they play at this point. Do you think the Leafs do? I, I mean, you you wouldn't think so. Certainly their fans wouldn't think so. So the choker narrative lives another day. The Leafs had a lead, of course, with 10 minutes to play. Alex Kerfoot put them on a five on three. Tampa Bay ties it. And now they have leveled the series at three games apiece. Game seven, Toronto, Saturday night. Let's go. That sounds fun. I legit cannot wait. I'm trying not to get Try not to get too uh, too up. I will do not want to jinx uh, Leafs choke in the in the first <laughs> round. So I, I I'm not gonna get too high on this. I'm I'm gonna wait and um, but rest assured I'm smiling. <laughs> and now we turn our attention to Edmonton. <laughs> this series has also been really good and really interesting. So to come back to to your Canucks point. Um, will you remind me of what it was? Yeah, I guess it was overall the idea of when you, let's say, have these situations where, let's say, you do a Hamonic trade and you get a third round pick. How inclined are you to just keep those assets as opposed to then going out and trying to find guys with those uh, draft picks? I mean, I like my my analogy is cash on hand versus gift cards. Right. right. To me, um, you know, mileage varies um, for teams in analyzing individual players, but draft picks have fixed value. And so if you're trying to get better fast, you know, step one, carve out a ton of cap flexibility. Step two, have us carry as much cash on hand as possible so that you're able to pounce. Right. Uh, I, you know, yeah. th- that's w- that's the big edge. The teams who have you know, our asset rich have, right? I mean, the Tampa, the, sorry, the Los Angeles Kings, who I'm watching now, are a good example. 
because they can quickly turn on a dime and just sell a bunch of draft picks for Victor Arvidsson because they've made 18 million draft picks. They have their own prospects, right? And, and if Tampa doesn't, or if Nashville doesn't want X depth prospect from the Kings, they don't have interest in Tyler Madden. They don't think his size is going to play up in the pros. That's fine. We don't, we, we have Tyler Madden so we can part ways with some mid rounders, right? Uh, that's, that's the edge of having that war chest. So for me, if you're trying to get better fast, right, you clear a ton of cap space, you carry cash on hand, you pounce on opportunities when they come. And sometimes those opportunities might involve taking a contract and getting an asset, right? It might, it might involve not weakening your team, but building your team a little bit differently. And, and I think there's some really interesting opportunities to do that. You know, Patrick Hornquist, we all saw him score on that breakaway. But Florida's got some contract issues in terms of Barkov goes in for his extension lift next year. They're going to have to extend Uyghur. They're going to have to extend Huberto. Those won't kick in next season, but they're going to have to start planning for it. Uh, certainly, too, they're going to need to be, you know, competing for a cup with with that core and that team. And so, you know, would they pay an asset? Could you get an asset to take on Patrick Hornfist if you cleared space elsewhere? And is, is Patrick Hornfist, you know, by all, by all accounts, first of all, great playoff performer. Uh, secondly, a heavy, heavier type player, right? The type of player this team could sorely use in the trenches. And last of all, you know, as high character guys you'll ever find. Plus there's the familiarity angle, right? Like to me, those are the types of deals that might be worth doing if you're looking to restock the, the sort of system. If you're trying to restock your war chest of assets, I, I, I think considering those and considering those types of moves very seriously uh, could pay dividends. I'll give you another example. In the summer of the Canucks signed Braden Holtby, uh, the Los Angeles Kings, or sorry, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, the Vegas Golden Knights, were aggressively shopping their netminder, Marc-Andre Fleury, with picks attached, right? With futures attached. Now, they ended up trading Nate Schmidt instead, and Vancouver took advantage of that, paying an asset to do so. But what what would you have been better off doing, right? Spending that money on defensemen and say their evaluation of Tanev never even changed, but say it was, you know, Gudis and Nudavara or, or what have you. I mean, Ryan Murray moved that year for in a cap dump trade. Obviously, we know Devon Taves, but I'm not even going to go with the with the prime example. Like, but I'm but that's a but that's a perfect example. Like you add Schmidt and Holpe at nine million, right? Would you wouldn't you have been better off doing getting picks for Marc Andre Fleury and flipping? those picks for, for Devon Taves at 11 million, right? I mean, th- those are the types of moves I think you have to consider when you're in a position like the Canucks are, where you're, you know, basically trying to, to plan a great escape from the mushy middle uh, in a situation where you don't have much coming in the pipeline, you don't have your full arsenal of draft picks, and you don't have a ton of cap flexibility going into this offseason. Yeah, and I think the key difference there is the types of players, I guess, that you're rolling the dice on where in, I think the Jim Benning sort of uh, era of the early parts during the age gap experiment, the problem was the archetype of player that they sort of targeted was sort of reclamation project who was former top prospect type. Um, And you're hoping that a fresh start can turn them around as opposed to, I think, when you're looking at how you want to potentially spend draft picks this offseason, sure, you can um, roll the dice on those types of reclamation projects. I'm personally not the biggest fan, obviously, depending on the player. Uh, I think the difference is you, as, as you alluded to in some of the examples you highlighted, want to chase teams and players that have that have cap holes, right? Uh, you look at Vegas, for instance, and uh, Nicholas Waugh. He's a 750K player. Now he's in RFA with Arbrights. Can they even afford to keep him? They've obviously got Eichel now in the fold. They're going to be facing cap challenges. They face cap challenges every year. And you look at the sort of player that Nick Wah is, 25 years old, six foot four centerman, uh, scored nearly 40 points this year. He can also play the wing. He's got um, he's got the sort of game where he's got finesse and enough skill to play in your top nine um, and sort of genuinely drive play. But he also plays hard and. I personally love Nick Waugh, right? And it's those types of opportunities where once you perhaps do accumulate draft picks, maybe that's where you, those are the players you target that are established and um, can, and, and you know you're going to get value for them as opposed to 
let's let's just throw a second or third round pick against the wall and hope that this 22 year old tweener who light who's been lighting up the AHL but hasn't been able to figure it out in the NHL. Uh, let's hope that he figures it out. Yeah, I mean, probably the biggest warning sign in retrospect with Vey was his line mates, right? I mean, yeah, Vey to Foley Pearson was like a wrecking ball in the American Hockey League. Won a Calder Cup. Um, if the other two, like the other two, by the time they made the trade, the other two had played NHL games, right? Were were clearly NHL players. Um, maybe don't want to grab the passenger <laughs> on a dominant <laughs> NHL line as a general rule. So let's open it up to questions. So for those of you who've never done this format with us before, if you raise your hand, you will be, you'll be sent into a queue from where I can select you and you can join in the conversation and guide our conversation onto various Canucks and or negative Leafs topics. You pick, you do you, uh, and, and we can, we can discuss that with you. So if you'd like to raise your hand, um, you can do so now and, and you'll be put into a queue and we will select questioners in the order in which they raise their hand. So if you'd like to hear us address a particular Canucks topic, any particular Canucks topic or a playoff topic or a complete yeah. bit of, um, you know, miscellaneous topic, uh, feel free Please to raise your me. hand and, and, and take part in our conversation. All right. In the meantime, since we don't have any hands raised yet. Oh. Yes, we do. Okay. Tyson W., I'm inviting you up to the stage. Tyson, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Thanks for joining us. What What would you like to talk about? So um, I actually kind of wanted uh, to talk to you guys and kind of bring up um, and kind of talk about the direction in which um, the team and management wants to go, which is clearly completely different from previous management. And I kind of wanted to know what you guys thought of um, – or would think of um, if the Canucks decided to actually, um, you know, rebrand and go back to the old flying skate jerseys in hopes to kind of leave the previous management and regime uh, in the past and try to look forward um, into something more promising and creating a new uh, a new brand with that and go back to the old flying skate. It's an interesting question, Tyson. Thank you. So I think we're going to see more of the flying skate next year. I suspect we'll see it as a, as a full-time third Jersey. I don't think they're going to go away from the Orca or from the blue, just because I, I think there's an organizational sense from on high that, you know, it reflects the, like, you know, it ref- it's very Vancouver-y. It reflects the, the um, area. It reflects like the the green and and blue should be what you wear when you're the team located at the you know tail end of the Sea to Sky Highway. So I don't see them abandoning that color scheme or the or the logo anytime soon. But I do think we're going to see more of the skate. Um, you know, I like the idea of sort of looking ahead by turning back. I think one big strength that the Canucks have in general, and and it used to be a negative, but they've had so many jerseys over the years that, you know, you're able to look at, you're able to look at a variety of different options. I'd love to get to a point where the Canucks have three different jerseys every year, like a different home, a different road, a different, I I, I just think it would be cool. I think it'd be fun for fans to have lots of different varieties. I think it'd be a cool way of commemorating particularly successful seasons. Uh, So that's sort of my preference, but I do think we'll see the flying skate a lot more. A lot more next season. And, and clearly that's already been telegraphed by the team going to it for the last two home games. Yeah, I Harman, think. Sorry, go. Yeah I'm, uh, yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of having the flying skate back as, uh, as the third one. It's, it's clearly such a fan favorite. And to kind of echo your point about having continued experimentation with different jersey styles, I really like what the um, NBA has kind of done, and maybe not to their extent because they do it every single year, and it's kind of hard to keep track of. Uh, forget what the name is of of the projects of uh, the project that they do, but regularly you have these NBA teams come out with new jerseys every every year, and um, I I'm not even a Miami Heat fan, but I remember seeing the Heat Vice City um, colorway and seeing all the different ways they'd experiment with it, and I think they overdid it a little towards the end where. Because they had to refresh it every year, it became a little bit wonky. But those jerseys looked sick. And because you had that experimentation, again, I'm not even a Miami Heat fan. 
I had to pick up one of the Vice City jerseys. So um, I, I obviously like the idea of going to the skate more, more often as your regular third and then would love if the NHL as a whole, which I guess they kind of have done last year with the reverse retro, keep, uh, keep giving us uh, new jerseys here and there. I love the, um, the uh, Vice City heat look. Uh, and I know what you're talking about, like where they got to the ones that were like half blue, half pink, and maybe got a little out of control. But I thought that's actually the one I liked. (laughs) Was it? I liked the original pink. I thought that was incredible. Here's a here's a question from N of M in our uh, live room chat. He said, would you look at Carlson if San Jose is serious about moving one of their overpriced defensemen? What's your answer to that? I'm trying to double check how long he has left on his contract. Yeah, that's too long. Forever. Too long. Yeah, it's forever. It's another OEL at like an 11 and a half. It's it's a lot worse than the OEL contract, actually. Yeah, and redundant skill set with Quinn Hughes. Yeah, exactly. Like you're not positioned to use him right because he can't be your PP1 guy or he's not going to be your PP1 guy so long as you've got the franchise single season points record holder uh, in, in town. Yeah, and alternatively, I mean, I guess San Jose, well, maybe it depends on how aggressively they're, um, like, if they have a mandate to be competitive next year, um, you look at a player like Kevin LeBanc, like, that's a bad contract, that only has two, I think, two years left at, at almost five, so it's definitely a bad contract, you only had six points in 21 games, if San Jose wants to give you assets to take on that sort of contract, I think that's a lot more palatable than uh, than Carlson. I don't disagree. Um, I think the one to look for, though, would be the Vlasic buyout. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, he's been really bad, <laughs> but there's more hockey there. He's so smart. I mean, he can play the right side. Like, that to me would be, you know, you want to rebuild your value in Caddy Quinn Hughes? Uh, we can accommodate. <laughs> like, that would be, for me... For me, the the target on their blue line is wait wait for a buyout and and see if you can get Vlasic. That that would be my target among San Jose's sort of overpriced veteran D. Um, we've got another hand raise. This is from Michael C. I'm gonna invite Michael up to the stage. Michael, can you hear me? Hey guys, how you boys doing? Hey yes, Michael, we're doing how well. you boys doing? <laughs> we're doing awesome. well. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Well, long-time listener, just wanted to ask you guys, you know, you're at gunpoint and you have to trade OEL. What value are you comfortable giving up in order to get him off the team? All right, Michael, All right. Uh, an interesting hypothetical. Thank you. Um, so first of all, Elliot Friedman has reported that the Canucks have gauged the market for Oliver Ekman Larson. I don't believe that we're going to see that deal. And not just because it's too complicated. I, I think there's a fair bit of regard for Oliver Ekman Larson internally. I think there's a sense that, you know, in the defensive role that he played, huge minutes, um, that maybe there was ways of getting more out of him. Ideally, that if he was the second pair defenseman with more neutral deployment, you'd get more offensively, um, you know, finding ways to get his abilities on the power play, um, you know, harnessed in perhaps a more productive way would be helpful. I I think I think the club likes Ekman Larson. I'm sure they've done some diligence and had some calls, and I suspect that's probably where the report comes from. But I I don't expect that to to occur. So I want to start with saying that. Ekman Larson is going to be 36 at the expiry of his deal. He's 31 now. Five more years left, right? Five more seasons, or is it four, Harmon? Uh, one twenty. Uh, yeah, it expires the same time as as Hughes, so it's five more years. Right. Okay. Um. So, I you know, I I think so long as he maintains a level where he's a top four defenseman, I'm not going to be particularly desperate to get rid of it. Now, if a gun's to my head, I'd trade the farm because I like living. But in terms of where <laughs> where the Canucks are right now, I don't I don't think I'd be particularly aggressive trading futures to get off of that deal. I think what I'd be willing to do is take back bad money. Uh, bad shorter term money. I'd do something like that. You know, if, if, um, Philadelphia 
wanted to move James Van Riemsdyk. So I'm doing OEL for James Van Riemsdyk. Van Riemsdyk's at seven million with two years left. Um, would I give up a second to, to get off of the last three years of, of Ekman Larson and, and get an asset that I can, you know, whose value I can maybe rebuild and, and see if I can trade him as a, as a rental in a year and a half? Like, yeah, I'd consider that for sure. Um, but I, but I probably wouldn't even attach a first there. Uh, no, I don't think I'd attach a first there even. Maybe I would. Maybe I would if I had multiple firsts. But, but really a sort of secondary future type asset I would consider in that type of deal. That, that's sort of the way that I'd be looking at getting off the money. I don't think I'd be particularly thirsty to do so. Just considering where this team's at, I kind of think the Ekman Larson deal is something you have to navigate around. And I think you're better off navigating around it, knowing that at the very least, you know, his work ethics through the roof. Highly regarded in the locker room, character person, um, still a pretty good player, classy defenseman. Uh, I, you know, I, I'd be comfortable navigating around that unless I found something really appealing at, at sort of not a premium price to offload. Definitely, especially because, as we've talked about a lot, the Canucks don't have a lot of assets that, that they can kind of deal from. They're in a position where they need more of them as opposed to um a player like oel he we know he's inefficient for the cap hit but he still provi- he still provides a lot of value and it it just seems counterproductive for the team's um overall goal to give up let's say if, if another team wanted a first round pick to 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 take on and absorb that oel contract so um definitely agree on uh, your stance there all right here's uh here's uh we have one more we have conrado Conrado P in the uh, queue. Conrado, welcome to the stage. Hey, Jens. You guys can hear me okay? We can. Thanks so much, man. What do you want to talk about? Um, just to pull it uh, away from the Canucks for a minute here, but uh, just being like a fan of pure chaos, um, if if the Oilers and the Leafs were to lose their series, what like does McDavid ask out do the Leafs look at trading Marner or Tavares or Nylander like if like we wanted like an NFL like off season for this year like how <laughs> like that that would be my dream for for an NHL off season just because all our all the GMs say it's too hard to trade and you see the NFL teams going going crazy so it'd be a lot of fun just to see see a chaotic off season like that for the NHL what do you guys think? Amen, Conrado. I think amen. First of all, I'll let Harmon take the first crack at this one. Yeah, first of all, th- thank you. We definitely we're definitely rooting for the same outcomes here. I uh, am am hoping that LA can come back in this one. Um, again, I don't have anything against the Oilers or the Leafs. I'm just rooting for maximum chaos here. Um, I think in Toronto's case, it'd be at, at that point you'd have to imagine they'd have a. a, a a front office clearing in terms of Dubis out, probably Keefe out. And from there, you'd have to look at how are you going to rebuild your front office? And, and they'd have to then take their view on how to approach the big four and and what what big move is sort of necessary um, to kind of right the track, um, especially because you know that you may not have a ton of years left um, with some of the contract situations on the books. With Edmonton, I mean, I honestly don't know how that conversation would, would go down. I think there's definitely been after last off last um, after last year's loss to uh, to Winnipeg. I think there was definitely a little bit of um, frustration. Why would there not be um, in terms of McDavid and Drysaddle and looking at the team around them in Edmonton? But I I can't really I don't really know um, whether it'd be enough to amount to an actual trade request or whether we'd see management change to try and appease them or um, what the next steps in Edmonton would look like. You, you think we'd see management change in Toronto? I think there'd be a lot of heat for it. Do you, I mean, you lose that many times in the first round. It doesn't matter how good of a team you've built. At some point, you need the results, don't you? I mean, you do, but... Like you look at this offseason and you get Bunting, who's there next year too, does what he did. Kasha, incredible. Camp did what he did. Um, you know, you've got like basically everything they did except Morazic worked out beautifully. 
And Mrazek's not going to be nearly as hard to move as, as some people think, just because the goalie market's so wild, right? I mean, if you retain on him, he's basically priced as a league average backup. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you'd be firing one of the best GMs in hockey. I'm, sure, not, saying but they're, I'm, not, right. I'm not saying they're not going to do it. I'm just saying it, it, it would seem to me, it would seem to me to be, um, you know, a mistake. Like just like, that would be a mistake. I think, I think a smart team would immediately change management and go get him. Yeah, maybe. I th- I just that's my overall expect overall feeling of when you're in Toronto and you and you don't get it done that many times, um, especially because there is I think you know an outside view outside of Toronto when you look at the industry as a whole. Um, like there were there there's a lot of people who just hate the way Toronto's built and don't think Kyle Dubas is a good GM and. So he is kind of polarizing, and I think a lot of people look at. I, I think also big picture the optics of let's say the Tyson Berry trade, and and that's not obviously this season. That's a previous failure, but that that's a big miss when you look at how Kadri went in an alternate universe where let's say you just held on to Kadri and didn't sign John Tavares. Right? If if the Leafs go deep in the playoffs, no one cares about the Tavares contract. But if you fail again in the first round, that considering his five on five um, decline is now all of a sudden a big potential question mark of can you win around that contract or, or at least that's a, a significant pressure point. So I'm not here to dispute Kyle Dubis or say that he's done a good job or a bad job necessarily, but I don't know. I don't know if you can survive another first round loss. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out big stakes big stakes for the toronto maple leafs on saturday night um the edmonton thing you know the the fact is is that the damage was done this offseason right if they bought out koskinen they could have had 30 million in cap space if you have mcdavid dreisaitl and 30 million in cap space in the flat cap era you should build a contender like that like honestly baseline competence you should build a contender um to go get Hyman when the Leafs were able to replace that player for 750k, uh, that's a problem, right? The Duncan Keith thing, and I give Ken Holland not a pass, but like a little bit of um, a little bit of context is needed because the last two years of Keith's contract are so backloaded that I suspect coming out of the pandemic, ownership was like, well, you can spend the cap space, but not the cash. Like that's what that always smelled like to me, and. So, you know, I, I suspect that that was a sort of a, a solution uh, in some ways. But then you then you throw in CC, um, the Barry extension, um, you know, the fact that they didn't buy out Koskinen and just Neil not maximizing their assets. Uh, R&H gets extended. I don't I don't have a problem with that one. But uh, I mean, the, the fact is, is the opportunity cost is catastrophic uh, from what Edmonton did this past offseasons. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you solve that. Like they're, they're never going to win a cup. I don't think um, as a result, like I honestly think they missed this past off season, their chance to win a cup with McDavid dry in their primes. And I'm curious to see how that relationship develops. Should they fall short against the LA Kings team that, you know, they were like minus 250 favorites to defeat according to Vegas. Yeah. And they're spending over 13 million right now between Keith, Barry and Cece, I mean, Barry to me was the most baffling, right? Because they internally with either Darnell Nurse or even Evan Bouchard had guys that could run a power play. And they Barry's essentially a power play specialist. He can't defend in your top four. We've seen that from his time in Toronto. So that extension just from day one made zero sense to me. And now because of the Nurse suspension, they're going, to, going into this game with um, a top four of Kulak, who we both like, but it's still Brett Kulak on your top pair. Kulak, CC, Keith, and Bouchard. That's not good enough top four. Yeah, fair. I, I don't I don't disagree with you at all. Uh, especially considering where it feels like they were a couple of years ago, where they had a pretty deep system of prospects. And you know, you trade Caleb Jones. Um, you know, one guy kind of doesn't make it. 
Broberg doesn't look like he's going to be a big hit. Like he looks like he'll play, but he doesn't look like he's going to be a top pair stud. Doesn't look like Darnell Nurse 2.0. Let's put it that way. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, it, it's going to be a haul for that team to get to get back on track. Um, what would the Edmonton Oilers look like with uh, Matt Boldy or Vasily Podkolzin, by the way? Oh my goodness! Scary, right? Even and all this doesn't even take into into consideration the fact that they were lucky lucky to be able to pick up someone like Kane and just insert him into the top six midseason, right? Like that opportunity wasn't necessarily going to come off and Kane scored a ton of goals for them. Imagine if he wasn't available. Yeah, they'd they'd be in trouble. It's a good point. All right, we're going to take one more question, then we're going to wrap this up and thank everyone for joining us. Jonathan M., I'm going to invite you up to the stage. Jonathan, I'm going to invite you up to the stage. Hey, can you hear me? We can. Well, hey, can. what do you want to talk about, Jonathan? Hey, sorry, um, yeah, so thanks hey, for... Thanks what do you want to talk about, Jonathan? Well, it's funny. I've been thinking about this question the last couple of live casts, and you, and you kind of brought it up here that um, that the, the Oilers kind of have their two big players and their two big contracts, and you're talking about their window kind of closing. Um, you know, they, this is all hypothetical, but are the Canucks going to run into the same window, and would it be... You know, in a hypothetical sense, would it be better to move on from Hughes and Pedersen? I, I don't think the fan base is into it, but would we ex- have a better chance of getting a cup doing it that way rather than, you know, falling into this uh, trap that the Oilers have been trying to get out of for years? Jonathan, thanks for the question. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I think you have elite talent and you have to figure out how to maximize it. Like, Pedersen and Hughes are 22 and 23. Like, you've got some time here now it really is too bad that the Canucks signed Pedersen to a bridge deal and looked likely to well I mean they missed the playoffs one of those three years which kind of negates the logic like you have to make hay if you're doing a bridge deal if you're going for short-term savings at the expense of long-term team building certainty you have to make hay right like it's vitally important that you are good over the life of of Pedersen's deal and I suspect that's going to be you know, a tall order for this management group to achieve, just considering where this team is at and how limited their avenues are to improve. So, uh, you know, I think you have to trust at this point with 26-year-old Thatcher Demko, um, 23-year-old Elias Pettersson, 22-year-old Quinn Hughes. You have to trust that you've got the pieces, like certainly some core pieces of the next great Canucks team. I, I wonder if there's some fear that, in fact, the Canucks are further away than that. Like, what if, what if, in fact, Pedersen is this rebuilds Nazem Kadri and Quinn Hughes is this rebuilds Morgan Riley and you're, you're lacking the elite pieces you need to take that step, right? To take that next step. Um, that, that's certainly a fear to be cognizant of, but I, I don't think with the way the team is constructed that you're able to like, it's going to be hard to build enough to get into the top 10. It's also going to be really hard to, to disassemble enough, particularly because of Demko's likely impact um, to get into the bottom five, you know, where you've got like a real shot at getting a Zach Benson or a Connor Bedard or, you know, one of the true franchise altering prospects, Adam Fentilli, uh, Mika Michkov, that that class of prospect, I just I don't see the club getting bad enough, fast enough to get there, even if they. Are you still there, Dancer? I think your audio kind of skipped out for me for a sec. Hey, sorry about that. Uh, did you guys lose me for a minute? I heard I heard toward I heard most of what you were. OK, saying. good. Sorry about that. I got disconnected randomly anyway. Point being, uh, I don't see them having a realistic path to the bottom any more than I see them having a realistic path to the top in the short term. 100%. And I think the thing is, to win a cup, the first thing you need is elite talent. And I think Pedersen and Hughes, but you're not going to... Like you're subtracting potentially elite talent, um, whereas this team needs more of it. And... The, for me, anyway, if Pedersen, if there is a world where, let's say, Pedersen isn't able to live up to his billing as a franchise center or 
Quinn Hughes is more the Morgan Riley type of player. Well, then to me, you're hooped either way. Um, and at, and at that point, I'd rather I'd rather just bet on Pedersen and Hughes and Demko and um, I just I just think it's easier to try and win that way as opposed to let's blow everything up, start from scratch with zero franchise cornerstones, and, and let's try and tank and do it that way. I agree. And with that, let's leave this live playoff watch game party edition of the VanCast uh, there. Uh, Harmon, thank you for, for pinch hitting for Farhan Lalji today. We, we appreciate it. I uh, love obviously chatting hockey with you and with all the vips um thank you to everyone who joined us to spend some time on your thursday evening uh take some time off from your leafs schadenfreude and uh and enjoy some canucks talk and playoff hockey talk with us love doing this these things love this format uh, appreciate everyone who joined us for it and um you know we'll we'll uh we'll see you next time uh, i don't know when we'll do it again probably probably a couple weeks uh, we'll probably wait for some news. Like maybe we'll do a post Boudreaux's return one or, or something like that. We didn't talk about Boudreaux at all, by the way. So that's, we should get bonus points because it seems like everyone else is just tracking the song and dance, uh, you know, on a day to day basis. So, uh, bonus points awarded to us, Harmon. Bonus points awarded to all the VIPs who joined us tonight. Have a good one, bud. Thanks, guys.